Hi, my name's Sean Malloy. I am a PICU grad trainee, about to finish my training, and I'm going to talk to you today about um, hypertensive emergencies in the PICU, um, but more so how you deal with them uh, if presented in a general uh, district general hospital. So I'm just going to lead you in with a case to start off with. So think about an 11-year-old young boy who's admitted under plastics for treatment of presumed Stephen Johnson syndrome, which had escalated to toxic epidermal necrolysis, which encompassed greater than 90% of his, his surface area. Um, he was escalated quite quickly to intensive care, intubated, ventilated, and had massive sedation and analgesia requirement. And this included thiopentone, and hemodynamically he was on extensive uh, pressor and inotropic support, as well as, as well as hydrocortisone for inotropic resistance. He did then follow on to have significant systemic hypertension following cessation of thiopentone, requiring IV labetalol, which was transitioned to IV sodium nitroprusside and hydralazine boluses. His cardiovascular instability was felt to be autonomically driven and treatment involved enteral antihypertensives. And then with reduction in sedation, there was new concerns for his neurology and delirium and with ongoing issues of bradycardia and hypertension. He went on to have a CT brain uh, followed by an MRI and was diagnosed with posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, otherwise known as PRESS. So just think about that case as we go through my, uh, my talk. So I'm going to just basically go through learning objectives today in terms of hypertensive emergencies, definition, diagnosis, some of the causes and workup and management. It's a big topic, so I'm going to uh, restrict it to the, to the immediate management rather than ongoing uh, care. A hypertension occurs when there's an increase in the blood flow or vascular resistance across a vascular bed. And a hypertensive crisis, however, is an acute life-threatening elevation of blood pressure complicated by acute end organ damage. And based on the National Institute of Health blood pressure tables for children and, and adolescents, hypertension is defined as a systolic BP and or diastolic BP of greater than 95th percentile, which is based on your gender, age and height. Hypertensive emergency uh, is defined as a severe elevation in blood pressure accompanied by life-threatening symptoms and or acute end organ damage. So to diagnose this, you really ideally need an arterial invasive blood pressure monitor but if that's not available non-invasive non blood pressure uh, cuff pressures is most reliable and that should be measured in your right upper extremity ensuring that you've got the right cuff size because if it's too small it can lead to elevated uh, false BP readings. So any dis disorder that causes hypertension can give rise to a hypertensive crisis as outlined in the table that you can see renal parenchymal disorders, endocrine, drugs, uh, and cardiovascular problems. The etiology is complex, whereby the endothelium in resistance vessels initially attempts to compensate for the changes in the vasculature resistance by releasing vasodilator substances like nitric oxide and prostacycline. But with sustained severe hypertension, these processes are just overwhelmed. And causes mechanical stress and injury to the microvasculature. Endothelial damage occurs, and then you get activation of the renin-angiotensin system. And oxidative stress then further potentiates 
vicious cycles which causes further release of these additional vasoactive uh, mediators, pro-inflammatory cytokines and reactive oxygen species. These reactive oxygen species also act as potent nitric oxide, which is a really good vasodilator, scavengers, and then reduce its bioavailability, which predisposes to con further constriction and further hypertension. So it just continues to spiral out of control. As we said, a hypertensive crisis is an acute life-threatening elevation of blood pressure, complicated by acute end organ damage. The risk of development of the hypertensive crisis is greater with secondary hypertension than with essential hypertension or primary hypertension as we call it. Therefore, the absolute BP isn't really uh, as relevant to focus on. It's more so the rate of elevation of the systemic BP. And the neonate, the symptoms can be quite vague as with everything. They can include lethargy and irritability. Whereas in the older child, symptoms like headache, dizziness, blurred vision and nosebleeds can occur. Clinically altered mental state, papilledema and pulmonary edema can reflect, can reflect end organ damage. Hypertensive encephalopathy is characterized by headache, nausea, vomiting, blurred vision and altered GCS, which may progress to focal or generalized seizures, focal neurological deficits, reduced peripheral vision and cortical blindness. And fundoscopy can, re can really show evidence of organ damage like papilledema, retinal hemorrhages, evidence of retinopathy and exudates. And if not treated, these neurocomplications can lead to hemorrhage, coma and even death. Therefore, but it's really, it's really uh, important in this circumstance to differentiate from acute neurological events that may be associated with hypertension, like cerebral infarct or hemorrhage. Hypertension in response to cerebral ischemia can be caused by brainstem ischemia or increased intracranial pressure, such as in the Cushing's triad, where you get this bradycardia, increase in systolic blood pressure and reduced respiration. Here the aim really is to manage your ICP and not lower the systemic blood pressure as this will compromise your further your cerebral perfusion pressure and lead to, to worsening outcomes. When the ICP and central venous pressure are normal, cerebral blood flow is related to mean arterial pressure and inversely related to your cerebral vascular resistance. Therefore, in normal adults, cerebral blood flow is constant over a wide blood pressure range as you can see in the diagram. The range of autoregulation therefore shifts in the right in chronically hypertensive patients and this autoregulation is maintained by adjustments in the cerebrovascular resistance. Hypertensive encephalopathy occurs when your MAP or your mean arterial pressure exceeds the upper limit of uh, autoregulation. Acute stroke with severe hypertension poses a diagnostic and management challenge as the hypertension may be a reflex response to maintain this cerebral perfusion pressure or the cause of the brisk stroke. And in many patients in whom the hypertension is secondary to stroke, it just needs to take time to resolve and usually will resolve within 48 hours without any further intervention. So you need to be careful when dealing with uh, neurological manifestations. From a cardiovascular point of view, the effects on the left ventricle are reflective of the work needed to generate force due to the sudden increase in your afterload, which is associated with this hypertensive crisis. And it's associated with an increased O2 demand and reduced O2 supply. Your myocardial ischemia myocardial will result if there's no increase in coronary blood flow. And then a persistence and increase in workload leads to LV failure 
elevated LVN diastolic pressure and pulmonary edema. And this all is evidenced clinically by chest pain, tachypnea, orthopnea, cough, and even hemoptysis. Severe acute hypertension can cause aortic dissection also, especially in those predisposed, like those kids with Marfan's, Eiler-Danlos, Turner's, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And the diagnosis should be suspected in any hypertensive patient who has an abrupt onset of chest or abdominal pain, pulse deficits, and signs of end-organ circulatory compromise. From a renal point of view, acute renal dysfunction can be, called, can be a cause or an effect of hypertensive crisis. And in children, renal or renovascular disease is, is the most common cause of hypertension. 60 to 80 percent is due to renal parenchymal abnormalities. This can be reflective clinically um, with uh, elevated serum creatinine, mild proteinuria, and may be caused by primary uh, renal disease or maybe secondary manifestation of severe hypertension as in glomerulonephritis. Therefore, if presented with a new diagnosis, what do we do? Well, the workup is really broad and the overall aim is really to look for evidence of end organ damage and search for the cause. You should really spe seek specialist advice from a paediatric nephrologist or intensive care. But obviously, as with anything in paediatrics, we should take a thorough history in terms of stroke, mitocardial infarction, renal failure, anything in the background. Blood pressure must be in obtained in all four limbs as this will exclude uh, conditions such as coarctation of the aorta. And it's important to note that that is not just a, a condition in infancy. I recently saw a nine-year-old who was playing around with a, a, a blood pressure cuff bought by his father, who they discovered had a systolic blood pressure of 180 and went on at nine years of age to have a coarctation repair. Fundoscopy as well can also diagnose true hypertensive emergencies. Papilledema, hemorrhages, and evidence of retinopathy are all signals of end organ damage. The cardiovascular exam should include auscultation for new murmurs, aortic insufficiency and dissection, for example, or mitral insufficiency and myocardial infarction, which is rare, obviously, in kiddies. Heart failure may be indicative of the presence of parasternal heave or S3 gallop. And crackles in the lung fields may suggest pulmonary edema and evidence of, of cardiac failure. A full neurological examination should evaluate your level of consciousness, signs of any sort of meningeal irritation, like Kernig's and Brzezinski's sign, visual fields and focal neurological deficits. Physical stigmata of neurofibromatosis, like in uh, cafe spots, and other syndromes such as Turner's, Noonan's, Williams, should all be sought, because these can all be associated with renal abnormalities in the contents of hypertension. Ambiguity or viralization of genitalia may suggest adrenal hyperplasia. And then what initial lab results should you do? So really you should do a basic workup in terms of your serum electrolytes, your urea, your creatinine, your full blood, full blood count with a, full, with a blood film which shows evidence of hemolysis. Your analysis should look at blood, protein, albumin, creatinine ratio and do a, uh, a chest x-ray. And together paired with an ECG and echo, one can diagnose LV hypertrophy, ischemia, cardiomyopathy, cardiomegaly, widened mediastinal or pulmonary edema. Measurement of renin and aldosterone activity can be helpful also as uh, in hypertension this activation of your RAS system can occur. And when the child is stabilized, 
Further investigations for secondary causes of severe hypertension should be sought as guided by your clinical presentation and lab findings. A follow-up MRI will reveal evidence of posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome that we saw in our child. This, otherwise known as PRES, is a rare condition as described in our original case, which occurs second to the inability of the posterior circulation to autoregulate in response to acute hypertension and changes in blood pressure causes a resultant hyperperfusion with resultant disruption in the blood-brain barrier and causes vasogenic edema, usually without infarction, and as the name says, is usually uh, reversible with uh, regulation of blood pressure. Hypertensive crisis is a medical emergency with a high risk of morbidity and mortality. Management requires the immediate assessment of your ABC, your airway, breathing and circulation. And this may necessitate intubation and ventilation, for example, in patients with severe encephalopathy or pulmonary edema secondary to congestive cardiac failure. Hypertensive encephalopathy can be due to raised ICP, either as a consequence of an intracerebral bleed or cerebral edema. In this consequence, however, ICP either can be could be measured, but it's not recommended as blood pressure should be controlled over the following 24 to 48 hours. And you shouldn't be jumping in to correct this uh, blood pressure in the, uh, if you're worried about a raised ICP and continue with neuroprotective strategies until the patient is normotensive. Care must be taken with the induction of anesthesia to prevent dangerous swings in blood pressure. An expert PICU and anesthetic help should be, should be sought. Make sure you've got a, two large bore cannulas and be mindful that anaesthetic induction agents such as propofol or thiopentone or sedatives just like midazolam or diazepam can induce hypotension so they should be given very slowly if you are using them and hydrated against the patient response before muscle relaxation is given. On the other hand, stim uh, uh, intubation can be really stimulating and can aggravate the hypertension. Therefore, fentanyl at a dose of one to three mics per kilo given with induction of anesthesia can have toned the hypertensive response and tends to be hemodynamically more stable, even when compared to ketamine. So there can be a transient rise in blood pressure when, utilized, when utilizing ketamine. It should be titrated slowly and cautiously, and your, if your BP falls precipitously, you should give a rapid saline infusion of 10 to 20 mils per kilo to restore your blood pressure. For hypertensive emergencies, the goal is to expeditely lower BP to levels that eliminate the threat to life and stop further damage to target organs. Where possible, the child should be admitted to an ICU and treated by a physician who is expert uh, uh, who has expertise in managing severe hypertension in kiddies. However, therapy shouldn't be delayed if admission to ICU is necessitated or a specialist isn't readily available. So this is what I'm going to talk to you about today. The child should be managed wherever possible by the most senior physician and the blood pressure should be lowered fast enough to prevent or end organ damage but slow enough not to cause hypoperfusion of these organs. Continuous IV infusion of drugs is superior um, with only 4% complications as opposed to 23% uh, bolus drugs. And when IV infusions are used, the BP should be monitored every one to two minutes. And this is where your uh, invasive arterial line, if you have the expertise to cite uh, this, a line of this sort, they're invaluable. Hypertensive urgency 
Um, for example, hypertension, but no end organ damage can be treated in a non-ICU setting with oral medications over a 24 to 48 hour period. And medications such as beta blockers, diuretics, ACE inhibitors and calcium channel blockers can be used in this inpatient setting. These treatment recommendations for hypertensive emergencies are based on limited paediatric evidence from small observational studies which are really extrapolated from the adult population. Therefore, it's important to drive home that you need to identify the underlying condition. For example, if you have an acute intracranial injury, if you have an intracranial mass lesion, uncorrected coarctation, severe pain or sympathetic overactivity because of drugs. These can all lead to significant hypertension and antihypertension treatment in this case is contraindicated or may need uh, modification. So the overall aim really of pharmacological treatment is to drink, decrease your blood pressure by about 20 to 25 percent of the overall goal which is usually the 95th to 99th percentile of blood pressure for age, gender and height as we saw in the tables earlier and do this over the first eight hours. Importantly, previously normal tensive kids with acute hypertension can be treated more aggressively than kids with long-standing hypertension who are less likely to have symptoms and who are more likely to develop hypoperfusion and thus should, should have BP lowered much more slowly. To do this, I would really recommend confining your armory to three drugs, likely in a DDH also you would have limited access to these drugs. And it's important to note, however, that there's an urgent need for better uh, information on pharmacological management of severe hypertension in kitties, especially for some of the more commonly used IV hypertensive medications like libidolol and hydralazine. The lack of dosing recommendations based upon poorly conducted paediatric clinical trials clearly hinders your provision of safe, effective care to this vulnerable patient population. Therefore, what I'm telling you today is that the preferred drug for management of a hypertensive crisis is levetalol. It's safe, it has a, safe, uh, a good safety profile and it's easy accessible. Through its competitive alpha-1 and beta-adrenergic receptor antagonism, it causes arterial smooth muscle relaxation, blocks this reflex sympathetic stimulation of the heart and contributes to peripheral vasodilation. When given IV, it, its, its effect is exerted within two to five minutes. It peaks at about five to 15 minutes and its duration of action is two to four hours. It can cause bronchoconstriction and may need to be avoided in kids and babies with chronic lung disease or asthma. Therefore, you need to have another uh, few drugs up your sleeve. Therefore, in general, uh, the clinician should start with your lowest dose um, of the range and adjust the infusion rate based upon blood pressure response. Within the first eight hours of treatment, infusion rates should really be titrated to achieve the desired blood pressure reduction of no more than 25% of the total planned systolic blood pressure reduction as we talked about before, while avoiding additional symptomatic blood pressure increases. If libidable is contraindicated, like we talked about in asthma or heart failure, sodium nitroprusside can be used. And I'm aware this isn't probably uh, as available in the, in the broader community. 
it's a non-selective vasodilator with effect on both arterioles and venules, which decreases both systemic and pulmonary vascular resistance. Once infused, it interacts with oxyhemoglobin dissociation, dissociating immediately um, to form methemoglobin, while releasing free cyanide and nitric oxide, the nitric oxide being your potent vasodilator. It is useful because, it is, because of its rapid onset of action, ease of titration and rapid uh, dissipation of, of effects after you stop it. It acts within 30 seconds, has a peak effect within two minutes. However, as before, it was a very commonly used drug for acute severe hypertension. It's less favoured now because of the potential for cyanide toxicity. And approximately one quarter of kids on a clinical trial of nitroprusside had elevated cyanide levels. Impaired kidney function can increase the degree of cyanide accumulation, but co-administration with sulfate can help mitigate these, um, this this potential of the cyanide toxicity in patients receiving sodium nitroprusside. But generally, if beta blocker is contraindicated in patients with chronic kidney disease, they should be treated with an alternative other than sodium nitroprusside. Hydralazine is next up our sleeve. It's a direct vasodilator of arterial smooth muscle. Its onset of action is slower than labetalol. Um, and its duration of action is much longer and like, can likely be the source in any district general hospital. It's given by a slow IV injection and, and, and can achieve rapid control of blood, pre blood pressure where necessary. However, it does have the disadvantage of an overshoot hypotension with the potential of target organ ischemia. It's more likely with hydralazine, especially if given an infusion. So basically, Given that its onset of action is four hours, it's more useful as given as a bolus is every four to six hours. Tachycardia, headache, etc., are common side effects, um, and its response to this drug really varies with effect and rate. Esmolol is another cardioselective beta-1 blocker with rapid onset and offset of action which can be useful in certain patient populations such, such as following cardiac surgery. It can cause profound bradycardia and is very short acting so constant infusion is needed. The drug is contraindicated in conditions such as pheochromocytoma if this is possible and given these I think esmolol really should be a second or third line drug. In addition then to antihypertensive therapy, patients with underlying chronic kidney disease and volume overload may actually warrant diuretic therapy like IV furosemide uh, or spironolactone as part of their approach to their hypertension. But diuretics should never really be al used alone in such patients. And acute di diuretic therapy may be contraindicated in patients with hypertensive emergencies associated with congestive heart failure and pulmonary edema. So therefore, in summary, the whistle-stop tour of acute pediatric uh, hypertensive crises and the initial management. An acute severe elevation in blood pressure with severe life-threatening symptoms and or evidence of acute end-organ damages establishes the presence of a hypertensive emergency. I think if you're sitting in, in a peripheral hospital with a child with a severely elevated blood pressure, your first protocol is to seek advice early. Prior to treatment, care must be taken to carefully identify conditions for which antihypertensive treatment is contraindicated or may need modification.
emergency administration of intravenous labetalol or if contraindicated IV hydralazine or sodium nitroprusside should lower systolic BP in a controlled fashion by no more than 25% of the difference between the current systolic blood pressure and the goal systolic blood pressure over the first eight hours of treatment and you should really be considering transferring this patient out. That's just a list of my references. And I'd just like to say thank you for listening and I'm happy to take any questions.